This is a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. Go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Neon trees there, animal three after four. You're on in your face on 3CR with James. A huge thank you, as always, to the gorgeous and wonderful Matt Gleason, who does burning vinyl every Friday here on 3CR from 2 to 4 p.m. I'm James. I'm here on in your face until five o'clock. I've got two awesome guests on the show this week, kicking off at 410 with Max Nickel from Living Positive Victoria. It's the 35th International AIDS Candlelight Vigil in Melbourne. This Sunday uh, in Southbank, we'll be chatting to Max about the vigil, about HIV AIDS in the modern era, and uh, we'll see where the conversation takes us. And at 4.35, we'll be talking to Mark Camilleri from QSpace uh, about Q Health, which is a counselling service at Queer Space, which is part of Drummond Street Services. And uh, Q Health basically looks at alcohol and drug use in the LGBTIQ communities and provides a counselling service. Lots to talk about there as well. Two pretty confrontational and confronting issues for many people. We'll get into the meat of all that on In Your Face this afternoon. In the meantime, though, here's Blondie.
Listening to 3CR Radio. Do you know? 
Washington there, How to Tame Lions. We also had Blondie with their track Long Time. It's 12 after four. You're on In Your Face on 3CR with James. Well, the International AIDS Candlelight Vigil is on in Melbourne this Sunday. On the line, we have Max Niggle from Living Positive Victoria, who's hosting the event with the Victorian AIDS Council Gay Men's Health Centre. Welcome, Max. Thank you very much, James. Pleasure to be with you. Max, people sometimes forget that people are still dying from uh, AIDS-related illnesses and uh, people living with HIV are still dying early. Can you elaborate on what's going on? Sure. Look, I think if we look at this globally, it's uh, more about the fact that uh, there are something like 16 million people in the world who are still not on treatment. So, of course, they're going to progress to AIDS-defining illnesses and die and that's of, of great concern when you think that uh, we have the treatments available. But in Australia, uh, we also are finding that there are late diagnoses um, uh, for you know, new um, people who have been diagnosed with HIV. And it means that they've had HIV for a long time and often they present very, very unwell. And uh, that can sometimes be an AIDS-defining illness. So whilst we say here in Australia that HIV is, is the, uh, the epidemic and that we don't have um, deaths from AIDS, I can assure you that we are still having people dying uh, here in Australia. And that's often because they are not going and getting tested and or they're too fearful of, of going and getting that test. Are people delaying testing or being too fearful because there's not enough community education information out there that HIV AIDS isn't in your face like it was, say, in the 90s? I don't think it's a lack of education. There's plenty of education there. I just don't think people have HIV on their radar. Mm. So um, when it comes to men who have sex with men, they are quite well educated about HIV and how to prevent contracting HIV. But then we look at the broader community and we have to now acknowledge that 20% of people diagnosed with HIV in the last few years have been heterosexual. And it is that population that is probably unaware. You also have people who, who are like men who may have sex with men, but they do identify as being heterosexual. And um, they will be often not as well educated and probably quite scared to have a conversation with their doctor around sexual health. So there's obviously a huge amount of stigma around HIV, particularly for that cohort. That must be having a huge impact on, on their health because they're, they're not getting tested, they're not actually being proactive. Yes, and they're, they're often scared to even cross the door into um, not just the doctor's surgery but into an agency such as the Victorian AIDS Council or to Living Positive Victoria where we can offer them so much more support to uh, reduce that fear and to learn how to live well with HIV. Max, the AIDS candlelight vigil returned to May after being held on World AIDS Day in December for many years. Earlier on, of course, it was in May. Uh, why the shift back in date? Well, actually, there are, it's never been shifted back, so to speak. Uh, we started off having memorials here in 1983 and coincidentally, that also started happening uh, around the world. So the International AIDS Candlelight Memorial uh, is different to what we remember as the AIDS Candlelight Vigils. Uh, it's a grassroots uh, community mobilisation where you've got uh, hundreds of countries with tens of thousands of people coming together in solidarity to 
uh, reflect upon people uh, who have died from AIDS, but more importantly, educate the broader community around HIV and uh, the treatments that are now available. So uh, here in Melbourne, uh, five years ago, Living Positive Victoria decided that we would uh, re-establish the uh, candlelight memorials in acknowledgement for those earlier vigils, those earlier marches. And we wanted to stand in solidarity with everyone around the world. So uh, Global Network Plus choose the date, the third Sunday in May, and uh, this is um, done all around the world. So we're standing with everyone around the world on Sunday. So the memorial uh, service that's held in December is part of World AIDS Day, and that's a very much more solemn um, event where uh, people come together to reflect and remember uh, the past, but also people still living with HIV and some of those living for a very long time with HIV. So it sounds like Sunday's event's really a celebration, if you like, of, of the lives of, of people living with HIV and AIDS and also those people who, who have died, but um, their memories are still living on. Yes, it's, it's, it's really about reflection about the past and also preparing for our future for everyone that is living with HIV. It is about expressing hope and um, celebrating the achievements of the last 35 years. It's been an extraordinary period of research and uh, people living with HIV coming together with researchers and doctors to find ways that we can um, live longer. One of the speakers on Sunday at the Vigil in Melbourne is Bill O'Loughlin. He's the keynote speaker and he's one of the longest surviving people with HIV in Victoria. What kinds of things might Bill be saying on Sunday at the Vigil? Well, look, Wallace, I can't predict what's going to be in his speech because, you know, that's the surprise for the day. Uh, yes, Bill is uh, one of the uh, long-term survivors and uh, he became very committed very early on. So in... Uh, this memorial, I've tried to focus on the early activists, the ones who really set the foundation for where we are today. So Bill will be talking about those early years. But you also uh, had now, people like Peter Knight and yes. Keith Harbour and Bill Hathaway, and there's a whole long list of them, up, isn't there? There certainly is, and uh, we have what's called the Legends Exhibition at the Positive Living Centre, acknowledging some of those people. And... There were some of us that did survive that time, and Bill was certainly one of them, but he was a very early activist in, in setting up support groups and um, then working for VAC in the first 10 years. But not only that, you know, he, was, he worked nationally with the uh, Australian Federation of AIDS organisations in the early 90s, and this was at the time when the epidemic and the death were at their highest. So... Uh, then, of course, he went global and started to... Uh, he was on the UNAIDS governing body for the first five years of UNAIDS. And, and he continues to work to this day. So it's his early activism and his current activism and the handing over of the knowledge into our new activists. Because that knowledge is so important, isn't it? You can't have effective activism uh, in the modern era without actually knowing how it was done previously and how it was done well. And exactly, you know, you, it, don't reinvent the wheel. It's probably been done before. And what I love now is that we have such a new, young generation of people who have been more recently diagnosed 
who really acknowledge the history and are learning from it and applying it in a modern context. So it's a mentoring between young and older people living with HIV. Max, Victorian Upper House MP Fiona Patton will be speaking at Sunday's memorial. Why was she chosen? Look, it comes back again to the early activists, and Fiona was a very early activist in uh, the uh, sex worker um, community. Of course, and the Eros Foundation as well. Correct, and she founded the Eros Foundation. So she was going and talking to sex workers in the Australian Capital Territory and teaching them about safe sex. She then joined um, the National uh, Board of the AIDS Action Council and then also Australian Federation of AIDS Organisations. So as a committee member and a member um, of those organisations, she was working at the highest level, even with politicians. So she's got that grassroots kind of history, which makes her probably much more appropriate than most other sitting MPs here in Victoria or Australia, for that matter. <laughs> I would, uh, yes, I would suggest that. It is acknowledging uh, that even as an activist in the early days, she continues to be an educator and that she is agitating for uh, legislation now as a politician that will allow um, a a safer space for people living with HIV, a safer space for sex workers, and, of course, some of the more recent accomplishments um, that have occurred, such as the assisted dying bill. Uh, She was in Parliament um, when the repeal of um, 19A, the criminalisation of HIV transmission, was rescinded. So she's, she's got that huge body of knowledge that, again, she's transferring into a different environment. So it's not about her being an MLC uh, in the Victorian Parliament. It's about what she does in the community and continues to do so. Max, give us the details for Sunday's vigil so people can attend. I know many of our listeners have been affected by HIV AIDS and uh, would like to go along. Right, so it's held at uh, Queensbridge Square, which is on the corner of South Bank Boulevard, and Queensbridge Street, and that's just near the uh, big casino complex. It's the big red steps, so it's very easy to see and it's very easy to get to. starts at 5pm, and we have the amazing low-res male choir also joining us and two HIV-positive speakers in addition to Bill. Max Nickel, best of luck for Sunday, and thank you so much for joining me today on 3CR. It's great talking to you. Pleasure. Thank you very much. Cheers. Max Nickel there from Living Positive Victoria. It's 22 after 4. You're on In Your Face on 3CR. And here's Stephen Zhu in the morning.
27 after 4, you're on In Your Face on 3CR with James. A huge congratulations to all the people involved in Ida Hobbit yesterday, uh, around the world actually, uh, which is awesome. And uh, social media was alive with people commenting on on the importance of breaking down homophobia, intersexism, biphobia, uh, transphobia, all of those things, you know, misogyny, uh, all of those things that just present so much stigma and internalised discrimination and uh, fear in the community, which is completely turned around and the community, obviously globally, was just so empowered and it was just awesome to see. And a huge congratulations to all those people in Melbourne that held events, particularly those at Federation Square. Apparently it was massive and it was a huge success. There's more significant dates coming up. Tomorrow is a gender pride day. 
Uh, of course, we've got the AIDS Candlelight Vigil here in Melbourne uh, on Sunday, and there's vigils happening around the world. And uh, the 24th of May is Pansexual Visibility Day. So lots going on. Uh, up real soon, we'll be talking to Mark Camilleri from Queer Space all about Q Health which uh, provides assistance in relation to uh, drug and alcohol counselling for LGBTIQ folks. But in the meantime, here's Avril Levine. It's all been done before And if you could only let it be You would see I like you the way you are When we're driving in your car And you're talking to me
The Indigenous Social Justice Association Melbourne is continuing its Stop Failing Our Kids campaign until this year's Victorian state election. We're asking people to sign an online petition and to send postcards to Premier Daniel Andrews, calling for his government to abandon plans to build a $288 million youth prison at Cherry Creek. We want that money directed to culturally appropriate programs to address the underpinning issues rather than incarcerating children. For more information and to sign the petition, visit Istra Melbourne's Facebook page. Postcards are available at 3CR and locations listed at istramelbourne.com. Premier, it's time your government stopped failing the kids. Istra Melbourne is a 3CR supporter.
everything but the girl with the legendary Paul Simon, the only living boy in New York. It's 4.37 on In Your Face on 3CR with James. Well, every third week of the month from now on, we'll be talking to someone from Queer Space, which is an awesome LGBTIQ organisation that provides support for the queer communities. Uh, on the line, we have Mark Camilleri from Q Space, particularly uh, their Q Health program, which is a counselling service for queer people who want to talk about their alcohol or other drug use. Uh, welcome, Mark, to 3CR. It's wonderful to get you on board. Yeah, thank you, James. Thanks for having me here on this sort of wintry day. Very wet, but uh, I believe the rain stopped. I could hear it before in the studio, but it seems to have <laughs> ebbed, so that's great. No windows. Mark, how widespread or problematic is alcohol or other drug use in the LGBTIQ communities? Uh, well, James, um, unfortunately, it seems to be a bit of a problem. I mean, a lot of our research, you know, we've got um, the Private Lives, which are our national surveys, and we've got the Writing Themselves In, which is our um, youth surveys of um, LGBTI populations, and see that actually a lot uh, of, um, there's a lot of, Drug use and polydrug use is quite prevalent and more than the general population in, unfortunately, LGBTIQ communities. And just from our own research that we do here, you know, we did a bit of an audit of our clients. So out of like 687 clients, um, almost 50% of these, so half of them, had problematic alcohol and drug use. And um, and then, so we asked, we've been trying to look at, well, why, are, why is there more alcohol and drug use and out of those 50%, um, 62% of the experienced um, family or intimate partner violence. And then so we thought, well, let's have a look at our young people. So we did 15 to 25-year-olds. So out of the 144 that we looked at just for the year, of which 91 were trans, again, we saw high levels of alcohol and drug use and mental health and poor service use. So we can see that there's something going on in our community where they're sort of using alcohol and drugs at a greater and higher um, rate than the general population. How involved in all of this is the internalisation of, of stigma and discrimination? I imagine that would drive plenty of people to oh, use drugs I'm glad and you asked, because we actually asked that specific question. So we asked them, how, how is this related to your experiences of um, homophobia and transphobic environment? And we see that there's... That, that, the research links the use of drugs and alcohol with elevated levels of um, of homophobic and transphobia, and so we see that for these communities, um, that there's higher use of drugs and alcohol as a way of responding to the stigma and discrimination that LGBTI people feel. And we know that for all minority populations, that. We, you know, we medicate this internalised hatred that, that um, we get from the community. So stigma discrimination, I would say, plays a really strong part, as well as maybe minority stress as well. And I guess the internalisation of issues, you know, the, the internalisation of stigma also leads to the issues which kind of, you know, result in the violence in the domestic situations you mentioned. Definitely, definitely. And, you know, and I, I, I still, I know that the, postal surveys over, but, you know, I think we'll be looking at the ramifications of that, of having all that negativity and hate out there. Um, you know, we'll be seeing the ramifications for that for a long time to come. And we've seen it, you know, our, our, uh, just in our service, when the postal survey came out, you know, our waiting list, uh, the intakes doubled. And I still think we're going to get this ripple-on effect of people 
You know, some people are a bit more resilient. They have a bit more resources to let it wash over them. But for some people, if they don't have those resources and they're highly vulnerable, if they start to internalise these little messages and then it comes out in high levels of drug and alcohol use and then, of course, uh, violence towards partners uh, and um, lateral violence towards other members of the LGBTI community. In recent years, ICE use has become a concern within the LGBTIQ community. How do you treat it? Is a therapeutic uh, counselling approach best alongside a medical model? Like I understand it's pretty difficult to treat. It is very difficult to treat. And um, One of the problems is with ICE, typically, is because of the nature of the drugs. So it has a very long half-life, so it stays in the system for a lot longer than other drugs that we would tend to sort of pass out. But, um, yeah, it's quite prevalent in our society. I mean, interestingly, in the LGBTI community, you know, we're all very different. And so what we tend to see, just from our research data, is that, you know, uh, men, uh, gay and bisexual men, or men who have sex with men, tend to move down that amphetamine stream, so they're more likely to be using ice. And then for the, um, the lesbian women and bisexual women, they're more likely to be using alcohol, as a way of coping with some of this stigma and discrimination. And then in the trans and gender diverse and non-binary communities, particularly in young people, we see, again, more use of um, alcohol and um, more use of um, marijuana. Um, it's probably the wow. drugs of choice. So yeah, why so do you mainly... have such a difference in those drugs of choice from different cohorts within the community? I find yeah, that fascinating. I don't know. I don't think. I don't know why. What you know? Maybe it's just a cultural thing. You know, that sort of cultural idea of you know the gay party boy, and so gay men think, oh, that's the way I have to be gay, and that's what I'll do. And um, yeah, I don't know why the differences are within the different communities. But uh, yeah, something probably tells me about. You know, as we're inducted into that culture, if that's the prominent paradigm of that culture, um, you know, lesbian women drink more. So therefore, if I'm becoming a lesbian, I will, as I'm entering into that culture, that'll be seen the norm. And so that's what I'll do to feel accepted because I've finally found my family and community. <laughs> and, um, and so therefore, that's why they become, again, it sort of perpetuates itself. I understand the rate of smoking cigarettes is also pretty high in the community. What's going on there? Yeah, look, there was this little push about like, well, addictions are addictions and we know how addictions do move around. So therefore, you know, if I'm going to stop this, I'm more likely to start up doing more of something else. But um, yeah, so there is this uh, sort of idea about, but you know, one of, my ide- one of my thoughts, James, is about, you know, addiction is a response to trauma and pain. And that trauma and pain can come from the community, come from within the community, come from outside the community. And so addictions, they move around when one is taken away, it'll move around another way. So unless we're going to be addressing these ideas that, you know, being gay, lesbian, bi or trans is not good, it's not as good as heterosexuality, it's a little bit, you know, wrong, sinful, unless we're going to be addressing these types of things, we're still going to be re-traumatising our communities and so therefore we'll move towards different types of addictions. So... I think we come from a bit of a harm minimization approach that, you know, if someone was going to say, oh, you know, I want to move towards reducing my ice use or uh, moving away from ice, you know, I don't think we're going to be too worried about their sort of smoking. But we would still say, you know, taking a holistic approach to the person, you know, let's try and again maybe, um, you know, we want you to be healthy. Smoking is not a really healthy way to go. Um, and then we'd probably maybe want to build on that sort of person's strengths and competencies, so what do you like doing? Well, I like swimming. 
I used to swim, I don't swim anymore. I'd be like, great, so let's try and maybe get you back into swimming as opposed to trying to focus on, you know, uh, be that punitive and, you know, you have to stop taking drugs, you have to stop smoking. You know, we know for all of us that we all struggle with these sort of different types of things that we used to soothe ourselves. Um, so, you know, yes, some drugs are more socially acceptable than others, so we know that alcohol is way more socially accepted than ice. Um, and, and I don't think we can compare alcohol and, and ice and the impacts they have upon their community. And we know that, yeah, so smoking would be seen as acceptable as opposed to other types of drug use. So it um, sounds like you've really got to treat the underlying issues, otherwise you're going to be addicted to something still. Definitely, definitely. So if we're not going to be addressing stigma and discrimination, if we're not going to be addressing these internalised homophobia and transphobia, if we're not going to be addressing maybe these heterosexist paradigms, you know, this this heteronormative um, uh, world that says that gay, lesbian, bi and trans sort of an intersex people, there's something not quite right, they don't sort of really belong to us. Addressing those issues about minority status, and we can do that by building strong community connection. And then we're going to be dealing with the trauma. So how did that stigma and discrimination work out in this person? Uh, it worked out because when they told their parents, you know, they kicked them out and then their brother and sister didn't support them. And then they had this partner that was horrible to them. You know, if we're not going to be addressing those issues, you know, really, you know, all, all the drug and alcohol work we're going to be doing is um, just going to be Band-Aids. And it sounds like those issues, I mean, that's a massive amount of accumulation over the years, isn't it, that people have to deal with? And so many people within the community actually haven't dealt with those traumas. So by the time they access you guys at, at, at Q Health for, for counselling about their addiction, there's a lot to be unpacked. Definitely, James. Sometimes it can be, you know, it can be generational. Um, yeah, so, yeah, there is a lot. And, you know, yes, are we getting better? Is society being more accepted? Uh, is the LGBTI community being more you know, kinder to each other. So we've seen in the in the postal survey, you know, we were able to rally together. You know, some segments of the LGBTI community were able to rally together to have a stronger voice. But, um, yeah, so there's still a bit of a way to go, though. It's interesting, isn't it, because people, you know, the public face of the community is very much about celebrating that victory and and focusing on the achievement of it, which is which is wonderful. But it sounds like behind closed doors, there's a lot of discussion that happens in the counselling room about the damage that was compounded by that debate. Yeah, definitely, James. And, and we have to hold that, you know, there's two things in intention, isn't it? We want to celebrate the victory. Yes, a great thing did, you know, uh, we got what... Uh, 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 so, so we want to hold, yes, that's true and great. We all, gal- you know, we're able to, to galvanise ourselves and to fight for this common cause. But on the other side of it, you know, what was the cost of that in terms of, you know, not everyone came out of it unscathed. And, um, and we know that certain segments of the, of the LGBTI community, like the trans and the gender diverse community, you know, didn't, you know, didn't uh, receive more lateral violence from the LGBTI community because of their... Um, gender status, and so therefore, what's going to happen to those? You know, what? How are we going to support those now? Those populations? So a lot of unresolved issues and a lot of conflicts internally within the community. It sounds like that need to be addressed. Yes, that's right. And you know, and how can we build upon that? And you know, and we also you know want to address generational issues. So what are we going to be doing with our aged? You know, uh, we've got an aging queer population. And, you know, where are their voices and how can we sort of honour all the battles that they've done for us prior to this? You know, it wasn't as if this was our first battle. So how are we going to sort of keep those voices and keep those stories alive? And stories of great resilience of how 
how did they survive with not taking drugs? And how did you know? How did you survive? What? And if you did use drugs and alcohol to cope with the trauma, well, how, and then how did you move on from that? And a lot of that is about again finding a new meaning and purpose in life, as opposed to medicating existing trauma. I was going to ask you what kind of psychological and mental exercises you get people to do to um to stop them from relapsing in relation to their alcohol use or their drug use, but I guess the answer to that is really it comes down to the baggage that you're dealing with and also what works best for that person and and you having a few sessions with them to get to know them to make that assessment. Definitely, definitely, and I think we need those two pronged attacks, aren't we? We need to change culture. We need to fight against heterosexism and heteronormativity. We need to work within our community so that the gays are quite happy with the lesbians, the lesbians are happy with the bi's, the bi's are happy with the trans. So we need to be continually doing that that sort of advocacy and cultural change. But then, you know, working in that very individual, because everyone has their, how do we all process trauma? We all process it in very different and individual ways. But some of the times what we do in the room is like we might do anxiety management because it's a lot about worrying, worrying what people are going to say and worrying, am I safe? Uh, a lot of grounding and just being mindful and being in the, sort of that present moment as opposed to worrying about the future or um, keeping bad things that happened in the past alive. We want to sort of deal with people's emotions. So how are we going to, you know, if I am feeling, you know, it's okay to feel sad some days. It's okay to be angry. It's okay to be worried. But how do we keep it um, from, you know, bowling over? You know, where's that going to be sitting in my body? So maybe doing a bit of body mapping of, you know, yes, I'm feeling anxious. Where am I feeling worried? Where, where is this anxiety living? You know, it's in my shoulders, in my jaw, it's in my, the pit of my stomach. Um, you know, relaxation, breathing. As I said before, a bit of self-care. I'm building on their strengths and building on their competencies. So, yeah, getting back to swimming, you know, hanging out with friends and talking and doing things that are important to them. We want to do a bit of... Sometimes that will, will tell a bit of value and goal clarification, like who are you and what type of person do you want to be? Do you, you know, do you want to be a drug addict or do you want to be a contributing member to your society? You know, if you're using drugs because of injustices of um, heterosexism, well, in what ways could, instead of using drugs, could you use that for maybe doing some type of activism or some way of giving back to the community to make sure that people who are also exposed to homophobia and discrimination and heterosexism, uh, you know, the impact of it. So and volunteering and activism is really, really empowering for us because we give that sense of back to the community and that's not going to happen to anyone else. You know, and, so- and of course we do all our talky therapies and, um, and, you know, and then we have like things like Switchboard and Q Health where people can just ring up and, you know, have a talk over the phone for those days when they're feeling they might be relapsing. So it really sounds like you, you give people that permission to have some hope and some optimism and to, and to think that there are options out there and to build on that so they don't fall into those ruts that result in addiction sometimes. Definitely, James. Very client-centred. We want to be focusing on the person and look at them as a whole person, not just I'm a drug addict. You know, there are lots of other things about them that are really empowering so, you know, we want to centre around what they're, you know, what do they want, where do they want to go with it, in trying to empower them to be, you know, contributing members to the LGBTI community. And I think that's very honouring of, you know, and really, you know, we create this sort of safe space for that to happen. That's what Q Health is about. People are often defined as drug addicts when they when they use drugs and often people kind of use that as the focus of their whole identity. But of course, there's much more to a person than that. But I imagine for a lot of your clients, they do get caught up in that negative labelling and, and stereotyping. Yeah, 
definitely changed. Well, we're all addicted to something, aren't we? <laughs> for some, it's buying shoes, and for some, it's um, computer games. And um, you know, you know, we only, we only, we only, you know, we talk about drug use, but um, only when it becomes problematic is probably when we want to address it. So we do work from that very strong harm minimization approach. So you know, we see lots and lots of clients that use drugs and alcohol, but for most of them, it's not problematic. It's only when it becomes a problematic to the person who's using it, so therefore it's affecting their employment or affecting their relationship. So, we, and that's probably why we see lots of this intimate partner violence. Is that you know someone gets uses drug or alcohol, it becomes problematic, and then they're horrible to their partner or to someone in their family. And so that's why we see there's a, that strong correlational relationship between drug and alcohol use and intimate partner and family violence. So it's only when we hit that sort of pointy end where it becomes problematic. Um, that then we'd want to sort of make stronger sort of intervention using some of these interventions. But as we all know, lots of people um, use drug and alcohol and it never becomes a problem. Mark, it's been fascinating talking to you. Love your insights. Uh, keep up the great work at, at Q Health, which is part of Q Space at uh, oh, Drummond space. Street Services. And uh, really looking forward to talking to someone from your organisation uh, once a month here on 3CR. Uh, thank you Excellent. so much for joining me. Thank you, James. I'm great to hear talk to you. Cheers. Bye-bye. Mark Camilleri there. It is 5 to 5. You are on In Your Face on 3CR. And here's uh, Everclear covering the Go-Go's.
Everclear there, channeling the go-go's, our lips are sealed. I am out of here. Jacob's up next with a Friday afternoon rave. Don't forget the Insert Self here. Queer Arts Festival is a happening thing this weekend in Castlemaine. If you feel like a drive to the country, not too far from Melbourne. Uh, beautiful place. Uh, check it out, Insert Self here. Alrighty, I am out of here. Taking us out is Alicia Keys. Back next week on In Your Face. Have an awesome weekend, everybody. Shame on us, all your sons and your daughters. Thieve on your gold and we poison all your waters. Every piece of our soul is for sale, now they bought us. Think we know it all, then look at where it got us. Oh, mama, mama. Oh, mama, mama. We're crying to the wind. Trying to play God, we've been fucking with genetics. All that you have given, and we only disrespect it. The rate that we're going, premature Armageddon. That's what's gonna happen if we let it. Oh, mama, mama. Oh, mama, mama. You're crying to the wind. Is there any saving us? We become so dangerous. Is there any changing us? Even for the sake of love. How you gonna kill your mama when only mama's gonna love you to the grave? Killing ourselves, falling down with the sickness. Money is the king, it's a dirty, bloody business. There will be no trial, but the child will always witness. If we're in love with hell, why the hell would heaven visit? Oh, mama, mama. Oh, mama, mama. Crying to the wind. Mama gets the belt, you gon' wish we didn't do it Had your chance for redemption, but you fucking blew it Now the weather's changing and the hurricane is moving Right in your direction, what direction are you choosing? Oh, mama, mama Oh, mama, mama Forgive us for your pain Is there any saving us? We've become so dangerous Is there any changing us? Even for the sake of love you're gonna kill your mama when only mama's gonna love you to the grave. Uh-huh. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.